welcome to this very important panel discussion, which is focused on professional development, advice for current residents and fellows. So we've already talked about how ACCP has been so influential on a lot of your careers, especially when it comes to sharing some advice that you've gotten from mentors within ACCP or in your PRNs. So can, can any of you share any advice that's made a positive impact on you early on in your career? So that could be something you've already discussed or something else that comes to mind when you think about some of the advice you've received in ACCP. So Elias, what have you received in terms of advice? Um, so uh, early on in my involvement with ACCP, it happened that um, a mentor got assigned to me and he was the president of ACCP back then. So I was like, hey, I get to be mentored by the president. It was a little bit intimidating because I'm just a resident and he's a president. Uh, but he told me to get the most out of the meeting. And that is a very um, you know, good summary. But every time I go to the ACCP meeting, I try my best to get the best part of the meeting. So early on, I would say for residents and fellow when they graduate, and this is their first year of employment, early on in their career, the board certification that my colleagues uh, alluded to. So ACCP offers some of the best uh, uh, prep courses. Uh, so I attended those prep courses to, uh, to sit for the exam. And sometimes I attend those courses to maintain my certificate. Um, and I think Alex alluded to the ACCP Academy and uh, uh, to other programs. So I completed all three ACCP Academy because I felt like I am going to the meeting anyway. And I'm a teacher, so I should get a teaching certificate. And I'm going to the meeting anyway. And then there is a research and scholarship and I'm supposed to do scholarship. So let me do that research and scholarship. And as I got a little bit older, I enrolled in the Leadership and Management Academy because, you know, um, we're supposed to uh, strive to be leaders in our profession. And then I completed the mentored research investigator training to kind of help me take my research to the next step. So all of these were through ACCP. So it has very good uh, continuous professional development activities that you can do. And my colleagues alluded to the networking part. So um, even in the evening, I try to stay with my colleagues. Yes, I would like to see like the cities, you know, when you travel every time the meeting is in a different city. So we would go out to like, you know, a local restaurant or we can stay sometimes uh, uh, during the IDPRN, like uh, networking events. So I try to stay within my colleagues to kind of build relationship. And those early relationships, they start as fun and uh, let's go see this in this new city or let's go grab a dinner, but then they evolve to like collaborators on scholarly work or committee work. Very great points there. I've enjoyed when the meeting was in New York a couple of years, I think my P3 or P4 year, I think that was a lot of fun for me and I wish that we could have had it last year. But uh, Alex, do you have any advice that um, you'd like to share that made a positive impact on you? Yeah, I think the, you know, the best advice that I got probably came to me as a third year. And it's one of those memories that's like seared in my head, probably because I was so audacious as like a third year student to be in a dean's office telling him that I wanted to be faculty at, at a school someday. And, uh, and his response was really short, but it was always be thinking about what's next. And I was like, you're a dean, what is, what is next? I didn't, I didn't quite understand. And then you know, a couple of years later, he goes on to be, you know, provost and, and things like that. I think that advice was was really helpful for me early on. I think when we all start out, you know, we're very eager and maybe appropriately so for, you know, every opportunity that comes your way. But I think when you really get into it, I think you have to start uh, 
really focusing on what you want and you know what you want in your career and that you know that five year down the road question I think becomes really important in guiding what you say yes to and so it, it drove me you know it, you don't have to be public about that necessarily but I think I mean that definitely drove me when I knew I wanted to change into a faculty role it kind of drove the decisions uh, that I made now and, and even now in my role you know I, I know what my bar is for tenure and I kind of know you know what lane I have to stay in and so forth and so I think it I think that's been really helpful for me uh, to sort of always be thinking about what's next and staying focused that way. Yeah, I think that's a very good point to highlight for everybody that's listening to this. It's just the fact that, yes, you can be eager for all these opportunities, but thinking about what is next on your career path or like what your goals are and trying to make sure that what's being offered to you currently fits with where you want to go. I mean, dovetailing off of that, one of the things that someone told me to do early on was, you know, set a goal list every year of things that you want to do professionally. And when I first started, it was like, if any opportunity came along, I was going to take it because there were so, it felt like there were so few or, you know, there, there weren't as many. Um, but I think what's been really helpful is kind of that early to mid career. When you set that goal list and you're so used to saying yes, if you get an opportunity and then you look at your list and you say like, this doesn't fit in that, this doesn't meet one of those things, then that's how you know that you can say no to it and not feel bad. Um, so you don't get sidetracked away from the things that you really want to do. Another great tip. I'm very glad to be in this room right now because I'm writing literally all these things down. Uh, lastly, Deb, do you have any advice that you received that made a positive impact on you early in your career? I think I'll kind of just share a story that sort of was a positive impact, I guess, regarding just like networking, essentially that uh, pharmacy is a small world and everyone always says that, but that networking at these meetings or meeting all of these people, especially outside of your practice area can be uh, so impactful is um, when I went to that student uh, or the ACCP meeting when I was a student that very first year, or maybe I was a PGY1, I think it was a PGY1 actually. I remember going to one of the critical care sessions because remember, that's what I thought I was going to do. And they were doing a simulation and there was a bunch of people at the front of the room doing this simulation for this patient. And I don't remember what the scenario was exactly, but I was sitting next to this woman and she had a Southern accent and um, she was kind of just sitting there and she was, she could tell I was, you know, a younger trainee and she just turns to the side and she goes, that's not what they should have done. And she's just kind of telling me these things. I was like, okay. And then after the meeting is over, I go back to um, my preceptor who also happens to be the meeting. I was just telling her about this woman. She's like, I think you were sitting next to Elizabeth Farrington. Turns out I was. Elizabeth Farrington's one of the biggest names in pediatric pharmacy. She's the incoming ACCP president. First time I met her, it just happened to be sitting next to her at a meeting. And she was such a lovely person, just striking up a conversation with me, guiding me through what was going on in this simulation. And um, I think it's just a testament to what you can do at these meetings and the people that you can meet, not only in the sessions, but also just at gatherings outside of the meeting, you know, in non-COVID times. Um, we get to see each other outside of the meeting as well. And yeah, I mean, even if you're an introvert like Alex, you know what I mean? I think just doors open the more people that you meet and you talk to and just I just think being present and being involved and putting your name out there and just you know taking those opportunities I think is such a nice way to um, start forming some of those relationships because once somebody knows your name then the next time something like this comes up and they say who do we want to sit on this panel right like no one thinks of you unless they've heard your name and so I think the more that um, you just meet people and all of those things um, the more opportunities potentially that open up for you. Yeah, very true. Thank you for sharing that awesome story. That's 
great to hear. And one of my reasons for loving in-person meetings, just from all the people that I've met and uh, the opportunities that can come from that. But on that note, with all that great advice you all just shared, how about you guys share some advice for trainees about continuing to be a well-rounded clinical pharmacist as a new practitioner without burning out early in your career? Uh, Chrissy, would you like to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I know burnout is, is such a huge topic and you know, I feel like this generation of residents that I'm seeing come through my, my past couple of years of residence, I feel like I've, I've heard and seen so much more of a focus on like, how do I not burn out? How do I have this work-life balance more than I did when I first started as an RPD? And I think that um, the best advice I can give is I think know what it is that you're going to do, the duration that you're going to do it, and like the impact that that's going to have. And that's a little vague, but I intentionally went into my first position after residency saying like, I'm going to give everything to this job because I really want to establish myself. I was also coming out of like, I hadn't gotten the job. And so I was like, oh, this is so exciting. I actually have the job that I want. But I made a commitment to myself. And, you know, I was lucky that I had kind of a family situation where my husband and I had just gotten married and we didn't want to have kids. And he was in graduate school that we could both commit ourselves to our career for, you know, that kind of five to six year time period. And I feel like that really jump started what I was able to do um, because I had committed myself to that. And I knew that it wasn't going to be forever. Um, and I think I was trying to be really mindful of not overcommitting myself in ways that I, I couldn't get out of. But I think that when it came to organizational involvement opportunities, you know, writing opportunities and research opportunities, those are things that if you know you're going to commit to it and then you do it and then you finish up, if you don't want to do it again or it feels like too much, then you don't pick the next thing up. But I think that there's a lot of value in committing to your career early on to kind of kickstart where you want to be. That's my specific advice. Elias, what about you? What advice do you have about transitioning without burning out too early on? So like Chrissy alluded to a little bit earlier, um, when we're young in our career, we try to take every single opportunity that come come our way because first we don't have a whole lot of opportunities when we're young and we want to try to establish ourselves we give it all to our job and we try to we tend to take everything and as we get a little bit more seasoned the number of opportunities will increase so you can't really possibly take everything otherwise you're going to burn out uh, so you know it becomes like so overwhelming that you're barely keeping up with the things that uh, you're doing so Try to, it's almost like try to, to bite as much as you can chew. So don't overdo it. Yes, you want to be successful and you want to improve and you want to make an impact, but everybody is different. And so try not to be so competitive, for example. It's easy to look at your like idols in clinical pharmacy and see what they accomplished. But maybe like what takes other people 10 years, probably going to take you 15 and that's okay. And um, so try to, uh, um, to go like your step, step by step and celebrate every step. So that way you feel like, okay, we checked these things, we accomplished these things, now what we're going to do and celebrate those, maintain some type of a hobby outside, uh, you know, uh, your, uh, your uh, 
place of employment or outside like clinical pharmacy activities. Uh, spend time with your family because time flies. I have a five-year-old daughter and I feel like yesterday she was like two-year-old. So how come she's five today? So it's easy to, you know, be on Zoom calls or stay late and then you miss out on those opportunities. But if you think about it, that it may take you a little bit longer then you would feel like you can progress. As long as you're progressing, I feel like that's a success. It may not be like so quick, but progression is success. And if you're not so competitive and you're patient, I think you're going to succeed and you're not going to burn out. And the most important thing is the perseverance. And you're willing to do it over a long period of time rather than, let's say, cranking 20 articles a year and the next year you burn out that you can't even see an article. So... So many important uh, tips to highlight. Celebrating every step, progress, is success. Like these are very, these are things I need to put on my wall somewhere. This is extremely, extremely important. Um, I think this question is, is a really important to, to talk about. So if anybody else has any other advice that you'd like to share about avoiding burnout early on in your career, um, I'll open the floor up. But if not, we can also go on to the next question. I think the one thing I would say is if it was broken before you got there, it's not necessarily your job to fix it right now. When you start your new job at a new place, there are probably going to be a lot of things you identify from a patient care perspective that could be improved, whether that's the way the EMR is built for something, a guideline that needs updated, what have you. But I would encourage you not to try and fix everything in the first two weeks that you start your new job, right? Um, just sit on it, right? Take notes of the things that you think you want to modify and change. Um, and maybe talk with some people who have been in practice longer, longer than you or people that have been at the institution on how to strategically, you know, start working on some of those things over time. Um, I see a lot of new practitioners, practitioners who come in who want to do the best for their patient, which is awesome, but they come up with a list of all of these things they want to change and do right away. And they inundate themselves with a billion projects from the get-go. And if they've been doing it that way for 10 years and you don't need to fix it in the next two weeks. It's not to say it isn't, you know, obviously if there's a, an acute med safety issue, that's something, but um, if they haven't had a guideline for 10 years, you know, you can probably have a couple of months to work on it. And it's not something you need to do this week. Um, so I, I would uh, write those things down and maybe just sit on them before jumping on them when you're, when you're a new practitioner. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, coming into going to a new facility institution, or maybe you've had, been at that same institution as a trainee, and now you've had time to think about some of these things. I can definitely see the urge to, oh, this is, this is something that I know can be optimized. I want to do this in this new position. And it's definitely important to have that perspective. Yeah. And I think that some of that is driven by like in residency, it's so compacted. You grow and you change and you do so much work in such a short period of time. And so it's changing that mindset that when you go out into your career, like you're not going to do a whole research project and an MUE and, uh, you know, all of those things all in one year, there's not the urgency to get those things done that quickly. Give yourself a little bit of breathing room um, to, to, to work on those things. It's kind of a mind reset from residency. Yeah, I think choosing, I mean, I think the advice about, you know, choosing what hill you die on is, is fantastic because I think it's so easy to just burn so much energy on that. And, you know, you're, you're fighting politics and cultures that, that just, I, I think can be really soul crushing at times. And so um, I think then the other, only other thing I think that Elias had already mentioned that I think is maybe worth repeating. is just, you know, be really careful with comparisons because 
whether it's a past comparison, you know, practice models look a lot different now than, than they used to. So it's really hard to compare yourself to somebody from, you know, 10 years ago and, and their career trajectory. And, and then even like we talked about earlier with, you know, personal goals, everybody has different personal goals of what they're working towards. And so the, the, the different, you know, how full each bucket is of all the things we do is going to be different for all of us. So. Yeah, very true. Thank you all for sharing. I think on that note, that helps me transition to our, uh, one of the next questions I wanted to talk about is some advice about the research and publication process for new clinicians and graduates. So I'll start with you, Chrissy. Uh, what advice do you have for new graduates or clinicians on how to get involved with research and publication, or maybe that editor process that you just described? As well? Yeah, I mean, I think mentorship was so key for me. Um, I reached out to someone who I knew had published a lot, and I was like, hey, if you ever get an opportunity or get invited to write an article, like, could you, would you be willing to consider including me in on it? And that, that really kind of kickstarted everything. And I think the more you write and the more you publish, the, the more you get kind of a knack for it. And you really need people who have done it before to kind of teach you how to do it. Um, so having that mentorship, I think it was, was probably the most important thing for me. Great point. I can see how mentorship can be extremely important just to get your foot in the door with some of those publication opportunities, writing opportunities, or like even reviewing opportunities. Uh, Alex, do you have any advice that you'd like to give as well? Well, Christy went first because I feel like my advice is going to be the worst, the worst answer. It's a little counterintuitive, but it's if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And I only say that because we talk about burnout a lot, and I, I feel like people just constantly compare people to one another. And, and I think, you know, before you embark on you know, research or writing, I think you should really think about whether you want to do it and whether it gets rewarded in your current job or where you're going. And if it, if it doesn't, I think really think about whether or not you, you really want to do it because it doesn't, I mean, it, it, I, de- I definitely think it contributes to burnout, but if, if your employer in particular is, you know, discouraging you from doing that and, you know, there's really no reward for your career for doing it, I think that just can really sort of tie up a lot of people's time. And, you know, the worst thing is a project that never gets finished, right? It's not contributing data internally it just kind of sits there, then you've, you've taken a lot of time from you. Like Christy was saying a lot of time that people have, you've asked to mentor you in it, you've taken that time as well. So um, there's certainly a lot of benefits from doing research and publishing if, if that's what you want to do and that's, that's where you want your career to go. Um, but I think doing it because you see others doing it is, is not the right answer. Lastly, I thank you all for coming. But uh, I want to see if there's any other advice that any of you have for like work-life balance, mental health, and networking that you haven't covered or would like to mention. Um, Deb, do you have any lasting pieces of advice you want to share with everybody? Um, Yeah, I um, maybe awkwardly came prepared for this question because it's, it's kind of an area of passion for me, I think, because probably it sounds like maybe my, my co-panelists on the group, but I'm very passionate about my job. And I am very passionate about work-life balance and discussions around work-life balance uh, because I personally am one of those people that thinks that work-life balance doesn't look the same for everybody. And I, I, I have really strong opinions about when I feel like people try to impress their definition of work-life balance on another individual 
to make them feel like they have a bad work-life balance if that person's happy. So I, there was an article that I would highly encourage all of you read. Um, it's called The Fallacy of Chasing After Work-Life Balance. Um, you can Google it. You can find it. It's free online. Um, it was written by a pediatric ICU physician, um, but I really think it applies to all healthcare workers that take care of patients. Um, and there's a couple of quotes I want to read to you guys because I really, really love her perspective on work-life balance. And I feel like this was given to me by one of my preceptors when I was a resident because I kept saying, I'm happy, but everybody keeps telling me I have a bad work-life balance because I'm here late working on stuff. And everyone's like, you work too many hours. You have a bad work-life balance. And she gave me this article and I feel like it really shaped the next decade of my career. And I think will continue to shape my career moving forward. So a couple of quotes for you guys. It says, the constant pursuit of work-life balance actually worsens rather than improves our quality of life by adding additional, often unrealistic expectations to our already stressful lives. The root of the problem lies in the fundamental assumption that life is good and work is bad, which is the main reason why we need a work-life balance in the first place. So I think that for me and for you guys, hopefully, clinical pharmacy to you guys is something you're passionate about and that you love. And so again, the idea that work and life have to be separate and that when you are at work, that means you are not having a life and that is a bad thing to me is a fallacy in the definition of work-life balance. The author goes on to say, you know, the hours spent, she's a picky physician. So the hours spent treating sick children are part of our lives just as much as the hours sipping on a glass of wine, going on a family vacation or fishing with our buddies. Suddenly the border between life and work vanished. Work became life and life became work. We all have some better and some worse days, but by the end of each day, we will have made a difference in at least one child's life. If at that moment we pause for a second acknowledging this incredible achievement, recognizing that we made this world a better place for somebody today, we will experience the indescribable privilege of feeling balanced every day. So I think what I would impart on you guys, and again, I encourage you guys to read the article, is that it's all about what feels like balance to you. I would encourage you not to separate your life into buckets and feel that when you are giving to one bucket, you are taking away from another. If you love what you do and you feel balanced and you feel happy in the moments that you spend doing those things, that's work-life balance. You know, my husband is a bartender. When he goes to a bar to drink a beer, nobody tells him he has a bad work-life balance. That's considered a social activity and not a work activity, despite the fact that it's his area of work. So if I happen to be reading an article about neonatology on a Saturday morning while drinking a coffee, yeah, that might be work, but I actually really like reading that article and I'm excited to read that article, right? So I would encourage you to not define everything related to pharmacy or a professional organization as, as work and not life. If you love what you're doing and you feel balanced, then you have good work-life balance. It's a really great way to end this talk. I'm definitely not at work, even though I'm helping moderate this panel today. So I appreciate you all stopping by today and I hope you all have a great rest of your evenings. Thank you for listening to an ACCP podcast for residents by residents. Our theme music is titled Jupiter Smile by the 126ers and is provided through YouTube's free audio library. Please subscribe to the ACCP podcast to be notified of new episodes.